And let's pray. Dear Father God, we ask today to live in Jesus, to be found in Him, to have a faith that is rooted in the Son of God and nothing less, to banish fake religion from our hearts and from this place so that we live for the salvation of men and women, we live for the good we can give, for the love we can share, and nothing else. And Father, this is not the way we are. It's not our nature. So we ask for the Son of God to come into our lives this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Every good king has his roots for greatness in the past. Every leader of influence emerges from an essential context that makes the man and forms his character. Context matters in the person of greatness. While it is true that the great men of the earth became great by their deeds, it is equally true that someone in their past with character propelled them into the future. Mentors make a difference. Fathers make a difference in the lives of great people. Some guiding influence shapes the soul of a king. Some powerful presence protects the life and inspires the heart. A mentor instills meaning and intentionality in the life. And some men are the product of chance. We see them all the time. They can come to power that way. But the great men of the earth are the product of those who place their dreams inside a child's heart to ignite the fire that fuels the passion to change the world. A mentor and a father matters. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is the last king of Israel. He is the king of kings. The Gospel begins with the bold assertion that Jesus Christ by lineage is the son of David. Take your Bibles. Let's open them. Matthew 1 verse 1. Let's launch right into the New Testament from the very first verse. The Bible says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Boys are a lot packed into that verse. We have meaning here just pumped into this thing. Jesus Christ, first title in the Gospel of Matthew is the appellation that we are looking at right here. It says the Son of David. Before he was called the Son of Abraham, Jesus was first called the Son of David. David is the king who defeats Israel's enemies here and establishes the nation on the right footing. For Matthew, the Son of David is the most important title that he can have as he introduces the Gospel of Jesus. David is the king in history history that received the promise that God would make for him a house. And somehow you can't have a church, you can't have a future, you can't have an Israel without the son of David. David had hoped for much in his life that he would be able to build a temple for God, and he was not able to. He had saved the nation, he brought it into existence in a way, he had preserved it from chaos, but he was unable to build a house for God. God said, no, David. Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. But, but God did promise David something different than this. He promised him something like a house more profound than a building with an ark in it. Verse 11, he said, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and what does the text say? And he shall be, what? My son. The son of David 
would be the key to the rescuing of David's house. God would build for David a house, a house that David could never build for himself. The son of David would be the son of God. The promise was partially fulfilled in Solomon who built the temple in Jerusalem. Sure enough, a son came. He built a holy house, but that is not the deepest meaning of this promise. The promise to David was deeper in and more significant, more profound, that the outcome of Solomon's life and effort would be a future son who would build the house of God around the world, who would, who, would, who would comprise a people made of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue that would stand before the throne of glory at the time of the end, the house of David. And God promised David that he would build for David a royal line whose kingdom would last forever and the sun would never set on his kingdom. God would build his house. David wasn't expecting a statement like that. He thought that he would be the one to do it. And God says, no, I will build the house. The Old Testament ends with the apparent failure of the promise to build a house for God and a house for David. The temple is destroyed. It's reconstituted. Herod takes over. The royal line slips into insignificance. It seems as if all the promises of God have failed when Jesus Christ comes upon the scene that first Christmas. The last king of Judah was carted off to Babylon in the Old Testament account, and the royal line was stripped of power, and an evil oppressor took over, and so the words of God seem untrue in the historical unfolding, like God has failed. How many times in our life do we feel like God has failed? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like God failed and let you down? You asked this, you were certain that this was the outcome for your life, and it didn't pan out the way you scripted it? Has that ever happened to you? Come on, honesty here, it has. You see, the, the minute we figure out in our life that we're not God, that God is the one scripting our life's journey, that we are meant to be where he wants us, not where we think we should be with some glorious outcome, is the moment, dear heart, you begin to be used by God in a powerful way. God is not going to compromise. He will not let you be God for you. He must be God. And so we see that God's mysterious will is not something that men and theologians and experts can predict. It happens in the plan of God because God knows what's going on. 2 Kings 24, 19, the Bible records that King Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how the monarchy ends. The line of David ends with an evil king. Finally, he was captured. The temple was destroyed. His sons were executed before his eyes and before the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar blinded him so his last visual memory would be to see his sons die before his eyes, before darkness settled on him. Thus, the line of David comes to an end in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar appointed a governor over the land, and the time of the kings came to an end. Very suddenly, the rule of Babylon was replaced in time by the rule of Persia. But no king arose in Israel to fulfill the promise. The Persian Empire fell to the Greeks, and no king arose in Israel to fulfill God's word to David. The Greeks conquered, and then the Romans conquered, and no king arose in Israel that would fulfill the sacred words that God would build up the house of David. And Herod arose at last. Herod's name in the original language means scaredy cat. The fearful king, the crazy king arose, but he was not of the line of David. Herod's name spoke of the time of fear the people lived in. They ran from him because he was a murderer, a terrible king. The proclamation in Matthew 1.1 is a clear statement that God himself did not forget his royal promise to David. The Bible says that in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes. 
Maybe you could say amen to that. In Jesus, all of God's promises are yes. Dear heart, God does not have a tragic motif, a tragic story for your life outcome. He is not interested in bringing you to some kind of failed experience where nothing works for you. Dear heart, God in Jesus has a hope and a dream for you that is bigger than anything you can imagine. He is going to take you into eternity with peace and love and forgiveness and glory because of Jesus and in Jesus. And so, yes, he says, I have a dream for you in your life. The proclamation is clear in Matthew 1, verse 1, a statement that God himself did not forget his royal promise to David. And if he keeps that promise, he will keep his promise for you as well. The New Testament starts with the proclamation that the last king of Israel is Jesus Christ. The last king, the son of David, is Jesus Christ. And his kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. It is the fulfillment of all kingdoms. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's how Matthew 1.1 1, 1 reads. The expression son of David occurs 16 times in the New Testament. Three in Luke, three in Mark, ten times in Matthew. Matthew is the focus of this expression. Nine of the ten times this expression applies to Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. There is one exception where it does not apply to Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Matthew 1, verse 20. Here is the exception. The Bible says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife. The only other person in the Gospel of Matthew, the only other person who is called the son of David is Joseph. Think about that. The Gospel of Matthew begins with a carpenter who is recognized by heaven as the son of David. The Hebrew letters for David have the numeric value of 14. If you take those Hebrew letters, you assign to them their numerical value, it'll come out to 1, 4, 14. The genealogy is a full-blown description of what it means to be a son of David, the outcome of the numerical value of David's name. Look at Matthew 1, 17. So all the generations from Abram to David were how many generations in the text? What does it say? 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, how many generations? It says 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, what is the number again? 14 generations. Now, remember, David's name, numerically valued in Hebrew, is 14. So this is David, David, David being impressed upon the genealogy. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now he says that before he says the son of Abraham, because David is the most important figure in the mind of Matthew, the son of David. Now the Greek literally reads like this, biblos genesios. Now hear that word in your, your ear, biblos, book, genesios. Genesios, Jesu Christu, weu David, weu Abram, literally the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of Matthew starts with Genesis, but Genesis this time is not some darkness and deep. It's not some tale of light coming into a world uncreated. It's the story of how the son of David appears. And when the son of David appears, it's the new Genesis of the gospel and the apostolic era. Friends, you can't start over in your life without Jesus. You can't have a new beginning without Jesus. Jesus is the Genesis of God that we need. The genesis of Jesus is a new beginning for the failed family line of David. 
You look into the genealogy and there are serious problems in Jesus' genealogy. Sometimes people come to church and well-meaning saints will say, Pastor Mike, you know, you know who just showed up here. They got problems in their life. You ever hear that? Well, the preacher just came through the door. He's got problems in his life. Could you just write that down? Pastor Mike has some problems in his life. Pastor Micah may have some problems in his life. Head elder has problems in his life. You know, I want a church full of people who have problems in their life. How many of you are in the club of having problems in your life? Raise your hand. Now, if you're in the club of having problems in your life, then you're here because this is the place where Jesus is at. And forgiveness and grace is for us to grow. Now, God doesn't want to keep us down. He doesn't want us to live in knowing sin. None of that. But you know what? He welcomes the sinner. He welcomes the broken. He welcomes the outcast. He welcomes the person who has a, a lousy family system or a good family system. He welcomes them into his presence because he is our healing. Friend, Jesus had every reason to fail as far as his family system was concerned. You look at this genealogy, Jesus came from a line of losers. The line of David was not a good line. Abraham, we know the story, he was a polygamist. Isaac lied to save his life. Jacob tried to steal his brother's birthright. Judah sold his brother into slavery and committed adultery. Tamar performed the work of a prostitute to gain children by Judah. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabitess. She slept with an intoxicated Boaz on the threshing floor to secure his favor. Scholars are quite certain that this was the time of the judges when men did what was right in their own eyes. The text there indicates that a little more went on than should have. David murdered a man to steal his wife. Solomon led God's people into idolatry. Rehoboam oppressed his people and destroyed the unity of the empire. Isaiah committed blasphemy and profaned the temple by offering profane incense, stricken with leprosy. Ahaz rejected God's prophet as he sold out to the enemy. He was a traitor. Hezekiah boasted of his wealth to the Babylonians. Manasseh earned the title of the most evil king in Israel's history. Josiah died in battle as a failure, a hopeful king who just didn't live long. Jeconiah lived most of his life as a convict. Salathiel was a slave. Zerubbabel built a shack and called it a temple. The other figures in Jesus' genealogy were nobodies and nothings in the earthly way of thinking. They made no impact on world history. All in all, you read the story as Matthew has laid it out. Jesus came from a line of losers if it's all about us. If it's about human will, human discernment, human passion, they were really failures. And by the time of Joseph, we mean Joseph, the father of Jesus, the son of David meant nothing to the Romans. It meant nothing to the Greeks. And to the Jews, it was a fond memory of what used to be. What used to be, but was now nothing more than a sour memory of a failed promise that God had made that had not come true. Jesus is born into that context. Friends, the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David. There is drama in this one verse. In Matthew 1.17, the genealogy occurs in three cycles of 14. Now let's look at this. 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the Babylonian captivity. 14 generations from the Babylonian captivity to the Christ. Do we have anyone with a calculator here? You do? I want you to pull that calculator out right now, do three times 14, and I want you to loudly tell me what that number is. I would say take your time, but I'm in a hurry. No, go ahead. You're doing fine, Christian. 
You got it? I'll let you both say at the same time. Loud. 42. How many of you agree with that? 42. 14 plus 14 plus 14 is 42. Now that's a very significant number in the Bible. The genealogy is comprised of three groupings of 14, which together adds up to 42. In Numbers 33, how many of you have ever read Numbers 33? You read your Bible through? Some of you have? How many of you like to avoid the genealogies, avoid all these? Some of you do? Well, I'm telling you that every genealogy, everything, every place matters in your Bible. In Numbers 33, we have a record of the times that Israel camped from the time they left Egypt to the time they got to the Promised Land. So why would, you, know, you read it just one place after another until they get to the Promised Land. And you say, well, I'll skip that chapter. Well, I sat down one day and I counted up how many times they camped out in the desert from Egypt to the Promised Land. You'll never guess how many times it was. It was 42 times they camped out. 42 represents a wilderness number. It represents being in the desert but not getting to the promised land just yet. It represents the number of times you got to camp out and stay there until you finally go in. So in Revelation 13, 5, the beast power pictured in Revelation that will persecute God's people in the Middle Ages, that arises for the mark of the beast at the end of time. It's very clear for 42 months, it persecutes the saints of the Most High. 42 months, you do the math, using a lunar calendar month of 29.56 days, rounded off as 30. 42 times 30, we come up with 1,260 days. The church goes into the wilderness for 1,260 days, 1,260 years. 42 months is a wilderness number. So what's going on here? It represents a time of affliction, of suffering. It, takes, it represents a time in which you're not there yet, but you're trying to get there. From Ad Abraham to Jesus, dear heart, the people of God wandered without God's true shepherd through the wilderness of 42 generations. They wandered from one dysfunctional leader to another, from one family mishap to another, from one failed experience to another. They didn't get there on their own. And when the Old Testament comes to an end, they need what they needed back then. At the end of those 42 encampments, God raised up a leader named Joshua. And Joshua took God's people to the promised land. It is no accident that the name Jesus in Greek, Jesus, is the Greek word for Yeshua, Joshua. Jesus is the new Joshua, the new deliverer that comes at the end of the number 42 that will take God's people to the promised land. The son of David is a new Joshua. In Matthew 1.18, friends, Jesus is that new Joshua who can save the fallen family of David. The name means the Lord saves. The Lord saves is the new name for the son of David, and he will save the entire family of David. Look at Matthew 1.18. Now, there are very few verses that you can underline in your Bible, but here is one that you should circle in your Bible and claim this promise for your family and claim it in your own life. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When the mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 19 is the verse I mean here. And her husband, actually, no, it's a little further down. But notice on verse 18. Let me just back up a little bit here. You see where it says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. How many of your Bibles read that way? You looking at that? The birth of Jesus. See the word birth in your Bible? How many of your Bibles say birth? Raise your hand. I'm using the RSV this morning. The Greek word is the genesis of Jesus, genesis 
of Jesus took place in this way. Verse 19, her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband evidently didn't know that this was going on in the context, or he couldn't believe it. And so he says, I, it's time to marry someone else, but I don't want Mary to fall into disgrace. I'll just divorce her quietly. That meant that he would, of course, would bear the ridicule as if somehow he had, he, had, he had violated Mary. He would bear that stigma so that she would not die and, and, and tragic circumstances wouldn't come upon her. The gospel account gives little information about the life of Joseph up to this point. But look at Matthew 13, 54. Here it reveals his trade. We learn a little about him. It says, In coming to his own country, Jesus taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And notice the answer in verse 55. Matthew 13, 55. Is not this the, what does the text say on the screen? The carpenter's son. So they knew that Jesus came from a carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter, and Jesus learned the trade from Joseph. He was known as the carpenter. Where did this man get this wisdom? They all asked the question. Where did he get this wisdom? Of course, we assume God is the answer, and that is true. But the text has given us a different idea here, a, a, a human-level answer. Jesus did not attend the University of Jerusalem. Jesus didn't study under the Greeks or the Romans. He was not an expert in Greek philosophy. Jesus wrote no books and left no written legacy of his own by himself that would make him look great. And yet Jesus' teaching friend has changed the world. Dear heart, don't leave Jesus out of the picture. Jesus was taught by God through his father, Joseph. Joseph is the key ingredient that made the difference. When asked the question, where do you get all this wisdom? The answer is, is not this the carpenter's son? The Bible says that Joseph was a just man. You may not have an education, but if you have character, you have something to offer the world. The man who learned to rebuild lives, Jesus, learned to build a table and a chair at the side of Joseph. The man who learned patience with the flaws of sinners, learned patience at the carpenter's bench as he worked to smooth the rough places out of the wood. The man who learned to lift the burden and carry the yoke made the yoke. He made the yoke as a carpenter, and so he knew what the force of a yoke could do. He knew how to fit it right on an oxen's head so it would not hurt the oxen. He knew how to make a yoke and help the oxen to carry it. He learned this at his father's side. Joseph taught him that. He knew the weight of a yoke. He knew how it works, and thus he could be our leader in life. The man who endured the cross and worked out a complete salvation for us on the cross learned to finish and plane a piece of wood and to get it to where his dad would say, it is finished, son. It's perfect. And those are the words that Jesus' mouth uttered on the cross of Calvary. It is finished. The man who carried the cross with splinters and cut that cut deep into his flesh learned to put up with splinters in his father's trade as a carpenter. And so when they drove those nails into his hand, the carpenter was acquainted with pain. Jesus was the carpenter's son. Before Jesus was recognized as a king, friend, Jesus was first approved by God as a carpenter and a tradesman at his father's side. How important was Joseph in the life of Jesus? Huge. How important is a father in the life of a child? Huge. A mentor matters. In the history of Israel, carpenters were closely associated with the building of the temple. Most people don't realize that. You wouldn't have had a temple without a carpenter. 
In the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 5.11, carpenters were used to build David's house. In 2 Chronicles 24.12, carpenters were used to repair the house of the Lord. In 2 Kings 24.16, carpenters were taken into captivity to be used in Babylon to build houses there. In 2 Chronicles 34.11, carpenters worked to restore the temple after it was destroyed. I mean, you can't get along in the Old Testament. You can't get a temple. You can't survive in Babylon without carpenters. No matter how you cut it, friends, and I admit that as a pun, you can't build a house for God in the Bible without a carpenter. So the son of David, the genesis of Jesus, comes down to a carpenter who learned the trade from a man who was a nobody and a nothing in the line of David until he has the opportunity to mentor Jesus. In the Old Testament, the prophet Amos predicted that one day God would restore the fallen house of David. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Amos 9. Let's look at verse 11. This promise was quoted by James at the Great Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Amos is predicting a marvelous new beginning for the house of David. In that day, that future day, I, God is speaking, will raise up the booth of David, the tent of David that has fallen, repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. I'd like to pause there. I don't know about you, but I've built my life at times and found it in ruins at other times. Have you been there? I've had things that I was so sure would turn out the way I wanted them to when they turned out a different way. Friend, God is in the business of taking the ruins of your failed efforts, the ruins of your own constructed plans, and God is in the business of making it into a wonderful house of faith. His, his, his plan for you is purposeful. It's meaningful. In Jesus, you will make it. Did you hear me? In Jesus, you will make it. The Gospel of Matthew starts with a paradox. The entire line of David has come down to a carpenter who cannot reconstruct the ruins of David's broken house. Joseph can't do anything. Joseph is utterly weak and failed. He, he's at the long line of losers. He's a carpenter. He's a poor man in Nazareth, far removed from Judea and Jerusalem where kings should be. He's in the line of the kings, but a king he is not. It comes down to a man who is poor, insignificant, and helpless to effect change on the world stage. So what do you do when you are the son of David and you can't save yourself, you can't save your family, your family's reputation, and you can't rebuild the ruins of the past? You can't fix it. What happens when the world hangs on your shoulders and the world is too heavy for anyone else to carry? You can't carry the world on your shoulders. What happens when you are a carpenter? Carpenter. And your trade doesn't mean anything to the many that don't care and to the great men of the earth. It's a nothing trade. What happens when you're just and merciful inside your life and the world is hard and treacherous outside and you can't teach others anything because your life is a private life with no real impact on the world? How do you cope with that if you came from the line of David? The measure of Joseph's life, Joseph's life friend, is not defined by what he did on the world stage. The measure of Joseph's life is the legacy of what he did with his boy. Did you hear me? It's what he did with his son. It's what he did in his family. 
He changed the world by being a man of God right there in the carpenter shop. He took heaven's values, heaven's word, heaven's promises, and he instilled them into Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David. And in that act of mentoring, friends, we are saved. There is a Christian church that we are part of. I, I speak to fathers right now in the church. You think, well, does it matter what I do? I work all day. I come home. Maybe things aren't great when you get home. And you wonder if it matters, friends. You put your arms around your children. You hold them tight to you. You don't let them go. Your godly calling, like Joseph, is to mentor and love and raise your children be men of God. Now, I was impressed with these three boys here sitting, and a few others as well. When asked the question by Pastor Mike, they gave clean Bible answers. There they are. Amen. And I'm impressed with Christian, whose name bears witness to the truth that he's a Christian. This young man knows his Bible too. You know, fathers, I commend you for that kind of thing. You take the time to instill the Word of God into your children. It just comes out naturally like this. I've been in places where kids don't even know what the Bible says. And it's good they're in church. But these young boys are learning. Now, we had something great happen last night here. I wasn't here because I couldn't be, but I learned of it because I always want to know. We have, what happens on Fridays at Reaching Hearts International? We have Vespers. Now, our Vespers isn't some you know, fancy thing where we get a lot of people coming in from outside to do this and that. We'll have a little of that in the future. But it's simple right now. It's where people are showing up around, what's the time now, 8, eight o'clock? Schedule time's 8. It went later this time because you know why? Here's why it's a little later. So if you aren't used to some flexibility, our Vespers probably will make you nervous. Because certain ones in our church go into the community and we bring children to this church who are not members of our church and their mothers and fathers. And they sit in a circle after they've had some fellowship interaction with food. And those children read the Bible here in our church on Friday night. It's electric. I went two weeks ago. I took a picture of this. I couldn't believe it. Now, they do some other things we might not do in our church, but you know how I feel about that? Let's just kind of be patient with them because we want them in the church. Am I right? We want them here. But 27 people last night, it was more than we had in prayer meeting, 27 people, and most of them were children at Vespers on Friday. I mean, I'm just happy. I'm, I'm happy. They're learning about our understanding of Scripture. They're learning about Christ. They've been in the Gospel of John, right? Are they still there? Are they gone to Matthew? Still in the Gospel of John. And I think those parents, when they come, they're doting over their children because they're reading the Bible in a church. Now, there's no, it's not like we're giving them a bunch of doctrinal stuff. No one has the time to do that because it's just volunteers doing our Vespers. But they're giving them love, fellowship, Jesus, and the Scriptures and prayer in a circle. It's the biggest prayer circle we have in our church. It happens on, on Friday Vespers. It, I, I'm telling you, the Lord's doing that. It doesn't have anything to do with how we plan or this or that. The Lord is doing that. I had to say that. God will raise up the ruins of the fallen booth of David. Friends, the Lord will reach out beyond us to find his children at the time of the end, to bring them to his holy hill. We must be listening and in tune. How can we see a gathering like that and just walk by it? Friends, if you're here on, on Friday Vespers, you stop in, you shake the hands of those young children. Would you do that? Encourage them, give them your plus, and maybe they can become part of our singing up here one Sabbath. I don't know. I'd like to see that kind of thing. 
The Gospel of Matthew starts with a paradox. The entire line of David has come down to a carpenter who cannot reconstruct the ruins of David's house. So what happens when the whole world hangs on your shoulders and you can't fix it? The measure of Joseph's life is what he did for his boy. Look at Matthew 1.19. It says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, here's the one exception in the, in the Gospel of Matthew where the title Son of David is not used for Jesus. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you, you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the verse you need to underline that I was talking about, verse 21. That is a promise for you and your family. Friend, you can't save your son or daughter that's left the church. You can't save you can't save your family with all the struggles you're going to. You can't fix those larger-than-life issues in your life. But friends, Jesus was sent to save his people from their sins and every other issue in their life. In verse 20, the Bible says, An angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is the first of three contacts that are prophetic in the life of Joseph. An angel appeared here in Matthew 1.20 to announce the birth of Jesus and to encourage Joseph to receive Mary. In Matthew 2.13, an angel appeared a second time in a dream to warn Joseph of King Herod's desire to kill the Christ child. In Matthew 2.19, an angel appeared in a dream for the third and last time to instruct Joseph to bring Jesus home from Egypt. That's prophetic activity in the life of Joseph. David was a prophet. Joseph is a prophet too. A dream is the modality in the Old Testament by which God in heaven communicates with human beings. Joseph becomes a prophet. You see, it is Joseph who breaks the deadness of the 400 years. There's no prophetic activity from Malachi to Matthew. And suddenly Joseph has a dream. Joseph becomes the first installation of the spirit of prophecy in the apostolic age. The last dream comes to the last man in the line of David when the dream of what Israel can be is almost lost. God puts the dream of Jesus in the mind of Joseph. The man who receives the dream is the man who shapes the character of the Son of God. In the life of Joseph's dear heart, he moved forward in response to the dreams. God has placed in your heart a dream that is true in Jesus. It must be sanctified by surrender to God's will and not your will. It must be worked out in a way that is God's plan and not yours. But dear heart, God has a dream for all of us. In the life of Joseph, he moved forward in response to dreams. The angel's message provided three levels of intervention in Joseph's life. Take your pen out. Let's write these down. It's the instruction in the story that is practical for our walk with Christ. Intervention number one, here it is, was to forsake fear. Now, if I were to ask you next week, what is intervention number one, you would say, based on that picture on the, on the screen. And what I just told you, what is it? To forsake fear. The angel said to Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. He's saying to you, do not fear to become a Christian. Do not fear to allow God to take control of your life. Fear is the worst enemy in a person's life who has been beaten down by the bad. Fear is the motivation that persuades people to surrender when defeat is the only option for the person who will not try. 
Fear is the attitude that prevents the heart from finishing a righteous work that is costly and hard. For fear of failure, people never finish and win the race. Fear is what we feel when we are far from God and God seems far from us. And so fear keeps us away from God. Jesus is God's answer to defeat fear in your life. Jesus, was, was, you know, Jesus is God's gift to defeat fear. Joseph was a just man. The Bible says this. But being just isn't worth much in life unless you are brave enough to act justly. Unless you are brave enough to say no to fear and do the right thing. Just living means nothing unless you are just. So the angel said, Joseph, do not be afraid. Today he says, says the same to you and me. Intervention number two, we have it on the screen, is to confess the Christ. Now if I were to ask you next week, what's intervention number two? What would you say? To confess the Christ. See, it's one thing to say, well, I believe to yourself. There's another thing to say, I believe to others. To say it to where people know that you are a Christian. The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. The key word is you. In the Gospel of Matthew, the line of David ends with Joseph, the son of David. In the Old Testament, a father names his son a father names a son that's not his, in fact, in this instance. In the Roman world, if you had no heir, if you, were, if you had no heir, there was a way out. You could claim someone as your son. You could name them as your son, and they would, by the law of Rome, become your son. Julius Caesar, who conquered Gaul, who became the new Alexander of the world, had no son that could pass on his legacy at the time in which he adopted Octavius Augustus Caesar. And Octavius Augustus Caesar became his son by law and thus the next emperor. Augustus had no son either because Livia Drusilla probably conveniently made sure they were poisoned. So he adopted Tiberius Caesar who became his son. Tiberius became the next Caesar. You see, adopting someone matters. He became emperor because he was adopted to be emperor. So how, does, how did Jesus, now think about this, how did Jesus become the son of David in the Gospel of Matthew? He became the son of David in Matthew because Joseph, the son of David, adopted Jesus into his family. That's how Joseph got Jesus into the line of David from the genealogy perspective of Matthew. Friend, the only way to save the fallen family of David is to adopt Jesus into the life and the family. Confession is the key an exercise of faith must occur. Fear must be set aside. It is not enough here to be a son of David, which Joseph was. It's not enough to grow up in the church. It's not enough to be a third and fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist and have a long family history in your church line. Are you listening to me? For Joseph and his house to be saved, for you and your house to be saved, you must call on Jesus and adopt him into your family. And thus all the promises of God become yes in Jesus if you do that. That's the critical thing. The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. Joseph, if you adopt Jesus, Jesus will adopt you. Joseph, if you call him your son, Jesus will be your savior in the judgment day and your savior every day of your life. Dear heart, do you come to church? Do you talk about Jesus? But are you afraid to take the vital step that counts the cost to confess Jesus as your savior and have it so? Paul says, if we confess with our mouths and we believe in our heart, we're saved. I hear all kinds of nonsense 
being bandied about in certain quarters of the church about some high level of personal perfection that is necessary for a person to be accepted by Jesus. I want to be very honest with you. I'm not there. I hear those people talking that way, and I know that they're not Christians. They're fake Christians. Because I live in the real world where I struggle. Are you with me in my world where I live? I have a sense of my feelings with God. And probably not at the level I need to know them. I am grateful that Jesus died for sinners and by the gospel, he makes us saints. First, by justification. We are in, it is imputed to us that we are his children. It is declared so by the power of God that we are his children. When Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's how we get accepted. And I'm grateful for a God who's with me all through my life, who can untangle the messes, who can get me through to the final judgment day and sanctify me, but who accepts me, not because of that untangling process, but who accepts me because of the cross of Christ every day of my life. That's the apostolic gospel. That's what I cling to. That's what the remnant church will proclaim in power at the time of the end. We need Jesus. You see, we must confess Jesus. Our movement, our lives, we are bankrupt without Jesus. Paul said, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then what does it say? You're looking at the scripture. You might be saved. You could be saved. It says you will be saved. We should not forget the truth that sets us free. Intervention number one, forsake fears. Isn't that what we just talked about? Intervention number two, confess the name of Christ with no shame in your life. Intervention number three, accept the Savior's success over sin when you adopt Jesus into your life. Be like Joseph. You adopt Jesus and Jesus will save you. The angel said he shall save his people from their sins. Now, how many of you want to overcome sin? I'm in that group. I want to overcome sin. I don't want to just be forgiven. I want to overcome sin. Are you with me? The Greek word here, save, is the word sozo. It means heal. He shall heal his people from their sins. I can't heal. Jesus can heal. Friends, by latching onto Jesus, we begin a process where we are healed, but we are accepted immediately because we belong to Jesus so the healing can happen. People don't get healed if acceptance is based on the outcome. People get healed because they have started a journey with Jesus who does accept them right then. He told the woman in John 8, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, the neither do I condemn you is the first statement. It's the beginning of the journey. Sinning no more is the journey with Jesus. So Jesus died to heal us from our sins, both the condemnation of sin and the power of sin. Joseph is the last son of David, cannot save himself. Jesus, the new son of David, can save anyone and everyone who calls on his name. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this is a proven truth. In Matthew 9, 27, two blind men followed Jesus and they cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Matthew 9, 28, and when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Now I'm going to ask you the question, do you believe that Jesus is able do you? Confess with your mouth with a hearty yes. Yes. 
And they said to him, yes, but they didn't just say yes. Look what the text says. Yes, Lord. See, they know who he is. He's the one who can get it done. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith. You see, we got to say yes with vigor. Yes, Lord. Let it be done to you. For Joseph the carpenter must adopt the king as his son to receive him as his savior. Or the line of David ends with no king and Joseph comes to an end. He must say, yes, Jesus. Yes, Lord. I will name you Jesus as the angel commands. You will be my son. And guess what? You will be my savior. You can buy anything on the internet these days. On one Christmas a few years ago, a Seattle-based company was selling tickets to heaven and an entrance to the pearly gates for free. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, how many people would buy that? At reserveaspotinheaven.com it read at that time. I really don't know if it's still on the internet. Maybe someone ought to find out. Reserveaspotinheaven.com was the website at that time. They were offering a travel kit with a boarding pass, which came with a certificate and a Heaven 101 booklet. They offered a chance to enjoy your sin-filled life without consequence while lowering the risk of eternal damnation. People were interested in that. The reservations were a big hit that Christmas. It was a gag. They made a lot of money on the gag, but gags go away. Friend, freedom from fear, righteous and just action in the life, salvation from sin, both its condemnation and its power, comes to us in life, not from within us. It comes to us as a new Genesis that is only received when you receive Jesus, Son of David, as King in your life. Friend, heaven is the gift in Jesus because Jesus is the gift that comes when you adopt Jesus as your Savior. You don't try to be your own Savior. You adopt Him as your Savior. And only then do you know that in your need... God rules, God heals, God fixes the family, God will lead you into the right pathway because Jesus is the healing power to save. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In Matthew, Jesus was adopted into the family of David. Excuse me, in Matthew, Joseph was adopted into the, you know, Jesus, yes, in Matthew, Jesus was adopted into the family of David. Joseph did it. He brought him in. In the gospel, friend, we are adopted into the family of Jesus. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to buy them back so that we might receive adoption as children or sons. And because you are children or sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. You see, in Jesus, we belong to the family. In Jesus, we are not outcasts. We belong to God as if we had never sinned, accepted in Jesus because of Jesus. That means that if you have Jesus, you are part of the privileged house of David. If you have Jesus, you have a right to the promises given to the Son of David. All the promises of God are yes in Him, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. When the issue of circumcision arose in the early church, and some were arguing that you couldn't be saved without being a Jew by being circumcised, James, the son of Joseph, that's Jesus' brother, stood up and settled the matter decisively. James, no doubt, learned from his father Joseph, the carpenter, that God is in the business of adopting those who are outcast of adopting children of the family who really don't belong by birth. 
He had adopted his brother Jesus. And James had learned these lessons from Joseph the carpenter and Jesus the Savior. He quoted Amos 9, 11 to 12 of the Council of Jerusalem when the, the rigid Pharisaical Jewish sect of Christians wanted to keep the Gentiles out over a technicality called circumcision. Acts 15, 13, and after they finished speaking, James replied, brethren, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles, the other nations than Jews, to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree as it is written, after this I will return. I will rebuild the dwelling of David, the booth of David, which has fallen, and I'll rebuild its ruins. I will set it up that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who has made these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. When people come to church, we should not trouble them. James learned from his father Joseph that God wants, that God adopts those who adopt Jesus. So he adopted the Gentiles. He adopted those outside of Judaism because that's what Jesus would do. Who was Jesus? In the Gospel of John, Jesus is the Son of God. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is the Son of Man. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is the Son of David and the Son of Joseph too, by adoption. In the end, the carpenter king is the one who rebuilds the fallen house of David and your house too. Christmas is the story of Joseph, the son of David, and Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter king, who saves us from our sins, the carpenter chose Jesus to be his son, and you, so you can choose Jesus to be your Savior and King. The most important decision of your life, dear heart, the most important decision, is the choice to, to adopt Jesus as the son that saves you and your family. Adopt him this Christmas. Jesus, son of David, son of Abram, King of Kings. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.